everybody. This is Chris. And Kathy. We wanted to take a minute to thank you all for tuning in. We appreciate every listener and are grateful for this platform. Please help us share our vision by subscribing to our show through your favorite streaming app. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube at Petability Podcast. Check out our ever-growing list of affiliates and sponsors. Simply go to the show notes for information and links. And be sure to use our promo code PETPOD22, that's P-E-T-P-O-D-2-2, on checkout to receive your discount from our affiliates. And now, here's a word from our sponsor. Hi, I'm Alon Landa, CEO of MedcoVet, and I'm a proud sponsor of Petability. We decided to partner with Chris and Kathy because, like them, we want to empower all pet owners who are trying to do the most for their pets. At MedcoVet, we specialize in advanced home laser therapy for pets. Laser therapy is a safe and effective treatment for common conditions like arthritis and wounds, and it relieves pain for most conditions caused by inflammation. With MedcoVet, pet owners can perform this treatment at home while receiving support from experienced clinicians. If you think your pet would benefit from healing at home, visit MedcoVet.com, and one of our clinical experts will work with you to determine if home laser therapy is the right fit for you and your pet. Tell them PetAbility sent you. Welcome to PetAbility. I'm your host, Kathy Simon, Certified Veterinary Technician and Certified Canine Rehabilitation Practitioner. And I'm your host, Chris Cranston, Licensed Physical Therapist and Small Animal Physical Rehabilitationist. Our podcast provides interviews and information to help your pets live their best lives. Good afternoon, Chris. How are you today? Kathy, I am good. You know, I can say safely that we've only had a very few number of guests that have kindly offered to come back on our show. And today is one of those persons. So I'm so psyched. Yeah, me too. Now we got a repeat. And it is Dr. Bethany Smyers Ennis. You know, the last time she was uh, with us was way back when we were just getting started in the spring of 2020. And now 75 shows later, here she is returning. And we talked to her about holistic veterinary medicine before. And this time we are going to talk about how Eastern and Western medicine complement each other. And this is right up her wheelhouse. You know, what does that even mean, these terms, Eastern and Western medicine? How do these two philosophies complement each other, you know, to work to a greater end than either one of them would individually? And finally, what does this mean for our pets? You know, how how do the the marriage of these two philosophies, you know, work best together to to help our pets live their best lives? So let's uh, tell you a little bit more about our uh, friend and colleague, Dr. Beth, which is what she goes by professionally. So she would say she's a small animal veterinarian and leave it at that. And Beth is just a special human being, but also very humble because she has an alphabet soup of letters behind her name. And it is a list of certifications that come after her veterinary degree of DVM. She is certified in veterinary acupuncture, veterinary Chinese herbal medicine, canine rehabilitation, veterinary spinal manipulation therapy, or chiropractic, as many of us would, would refer to it as. And this is one of the attributes that I most love about uh, Dr. Beth is she is a lifelong learner. She has ascertain these certifications as she continues to create her own path in veterinary medicine, you know, what resonates with her and, and what helps the most pets, you know, as these certifications imply, her practice includes acupuncture, chiropractic, dental care, fear-free, which we talked to Lori Chamberlain about fear-free, food therapy and nutrition, herbal medicine, hospice and palliative care, grief counseling, laser therapy, primary care, and physical rehabilitation. I'm just so proud to to have her in in my court and uh, to be part of of her team. You know, we first met back in I think it was like 
2007, 2008. I don't know exactly. She would know. Dr. Beth requested to shadow me to gain more insight about physical rehabilitation when she was getting that certification. You know, again, it just speaks to her wanting to gain as much knowledge as possible and see physical rehabilitation in practice. So she came to hang out with me and we soon became uh, fast friends. And I then learned that she was certified in acupuncture. So I went to administration and I said, can we please bring Dr. Beth on board? Because I knew it would just be a, a great team to have both acupuncture and physical rehabilitation for the pets that we saw there. Dr. Beth has treated my entire family of pets, cats and dogs. And uh, of course, I've implied that there have been dozens and dozens of, of pets that, that I've treated along with her awesome integrated practice at Sleepy Dog Veterinary in East Arlington, Massachusetts. So fast forward to 2020, and I was going on a lengthy RV trip and neither Dr. Beth nor I wanted to leave the clients that I've been seeing in physical rehabilitation in a lurch. So I suggested that we bring our friend Kathy Simons on board. And that was a match made in heaven, I think, for both parties. So Sleepy Dog loved having Kathy, you know, for her, her physical rehabilitation skill and wit, of course, and Kathy loved working with such an empathic and supportive team. And so we all continue to work together to this day. And, you know, Kathy, we both know how kind and compassionate and full of knowledge that Dr. Beth is. But, you know, again, I am so thrilled to, to be talking to her today um, and discussing how Eastern and Western medicine complement each other. So please welcome Dr. Bethany Smyers Ennis to the show once again. Welcome, Dr. Beth. Thank you, guys. I'm happy to be here. Dr. Beth, I'm very, very appreciative, of course, to be part of the Sleepy Dog Veterinary Clinic team um, and very grateful that they let me stay once I decided I was just going to stick around and not leave. <laughs> but um, Dr. Beth is also a huge supporter of um, veterinary technicians. She's also a big supporter of canine rehabilitationists. And when I first published my book, I sent out cards to just about every veterinarian in Massachusetts and Rhode Island to let them know that I had had published this book on living with blind dogs. And maybe I would say three out of maybe two or 300 people reached out to me to say, thank you for doing this. This is a really needed thing in the blind dog community. And Dr. Beth was the first one who reached out. And that was way before we knew each other. She sent me an email and said, thank you. So thank you, was. Dr. Beth. Yeah, <laughs> of course she was. I, I stand behind it. It's a super thank important <laughs> book that a lot of people benefit from. Thank you. So, you know, Dr. Beth, I, I looked up the word compliment because I wanted to, you know, just for my own knowledge, as we were preparing for this uh, episode today, and it was defined as a thing that completes, enhances, or improves to bring perfection. That's just a perfect def definition when we talk about all of the things that you bring into veterinary medicine as a practitioner. Well, thank you. I mean, I like how it describes it as, you know, to to make a whole out of out of two or more parts because it certainly does take all the all the parts of our medicines to do best by our pets. So yeah, I love it. So let's establish some of the terminology. You know, we, we decided to focus on Eastern and Western medicine. And I'm sure for a lot of our listeners, what does that mean? That it doesn't even necessarily resonate with them. I mean, they, they take their pet to the vet. What is that veterinarian doing? I mean, what are the different options? Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So I guess for the most part here in the U.S., when you go to the veterinarian, you're most likely going to go and be served up Western medicine. So I think of Western medicine as conventional medicine for us here in the U.S. It, of course, depends on the part of the world you're in, what your conventional is. But in the U.S., that's what I think of. So Western medicine being those medicines that have their roots in Europe and the Americas doesn't really apply to Western herbal medicine. That's kind of a different thing. But yeah, so I think of most of our practice in the US and Canada are going to be rooted in Western medicine. When I think of Eastern medicine, I think of Chinese medicine, traditional Chinese veterinary medicine, in my case, Ayurvedic medicine as well. Um, and there's also 
lots of different other um, types of medicines. There's campo herbs in Japan, um, all sorts of indigenous herbal medicine and traditional medicines all over the world. So those are kind of how we define it in, again, from our our part of the globe. I mean, would it be wrong to say it seems like Eastern medicine or Eastern philosophy of medicine focuses a lot on the prevention of disease versus what seems to me in Western medicine to focus more on treating symptoms. Is that a fair assessment? I think that is probably a fair assessment, especially when it comes to the perception of both medicines. I'm proud to say that in veterinary medicine, I think we do a lot of preventive medicine in our conventional or our Western medicine. I think we do a really solid job with that. But certainly in people medicine, I think that is something that has probably been at least, you know, that's how people perceive it. One of the things I love about traditional Chinese medicine in particular is that the whole idea is that if your body becomes out of balance, you use your acupuncture and you use your herbal medicine and you use certain food therapy elements to get your body back on track. But once your body is back on track, you use your your lifestyle and your foods to maintain optimal health. And so, so I do think that's kind of what you're pointing to, Kathy, when it comes to that more preventative essence of things. Yeah, but I think, you know, it, there's so many different kinds of medicines within each medicine that there's a lot of ebb and flow, I would say. Is it fair to say that um, sometimes we, we refer to Eastern medicine as alternative, complementary, or integrative, or do those terms kind of encompass that marriage that I referred to earlier between the two philosophies? I think that I could probably talk about this for the rest of my life and never feel satisfied. I think there's so many different ways to describe things. And when it comes to, I think, I think it depends on where you're starting from. So for us, who the three of us who grew up in conventional medicine, Eastern medicine feels alternative because it's different than the one that we are usually presented with. But it could be that if you were to grow up in a place where it was an indigenous medicine, then it could be the conventional feels alternative. So I think you can get turned around in that. But I do think when I describe things, I I generally describe things as um, what I do is alternative medicine because in our sphere, that's what it's seen as. I think complementary is a lovely term because it really describes what we're doing. In a, in a lot of my patients, we're using all the things. And so, so it is all complementary. And I think that sometimes when I talk about these things, it's more to, I try to speak to people from where their, you know, their perceptions are coming from. So alternative seems to work when it comes to veterinary medicine, because usually acupuncture is not the first thing that is suggested for most illnesses um, or preventions. So it does feel alternative. I think people also see, you know, they can perceive it as Eastern because again, here in the U.S., we're seeing Chinese medicine, Ayurvedic medicine, other medicines as to our East. So that makes sense to people too. So I think the whole goal is just to get as many people in understanding as possible. I think more clients are seeking it out too, Dr. Beth. Like, you know, when I started as a technician, it was probably like the mid eighties and I can't imagine it ever being suggested that someone have acupuncture or a chiropractic adjustment or food therapy or any of these things. And I think clients are really pushing to get these treatments because, I mean, if they can get it for themselves and they've had it for themselves and they know it works, then they want it for their pet. And now more than ever, I'm hearing clients asking about things like that, acupuncture, chiropractic, uh, herbal medicine. So I think it's it seems to be largely client-driven in my perspective. I mean, I do think that certainly, so I started my career in veterinary medicine in the early 2000s, and it was hugely client-driven at that point. I think that there were some um, kind of specialties of veterinary medicine that were fans of acupuncture. I think those in pain management um, and probably neurology as well. But I think with my my impression as a person in the world is that the alternative medicines, as we'll call them for this sentence, 
tend to be offered when there is something chronic going on that Western medicine doesn't have a solution for. And what I've noticed over time is that if clients or pet owners have an experience of acupuncture or chiropractic herbal medicine, what have you, being successful for one of their pets, then they're going to start it earlier the next round and the next generation of their pets. And I think that that also happens with veterinarians. So if they've had one experience where, or hopefully more than one experience where they've sent a pet or had a pet go to alternative or Eastern medicine practitioner, then, and the pet improves or does well, or something great happens, then they're more likely to recommend it in the future. I think also because of all the research that's been done and all of the, you know, it's kind of a little bit more above board than it used to be. Veterinarians feel a little bit more confident about its use and its, you know, the practicality of it. So they're more comfortable with it. So Dr. Beth, as you were describing, um, you know, kind of like if Western medicine, you know, didn't, wasn't curative or, um, you know, things kept uh, recurring over and over again, that maybe traditional veterinarians were more likely to, to seek out these alternative therapies. But it made me think just about, you know, our world, Kathy, with physical rehabilitation, because, you know, back when we started 20 years ago or so, you know, the, the common thing was rest and medication when there was something musculoskeletal going on. And we've also seen over the last two decades how veterinarians are referring to physical therapy sooner, more often and so forth. But again, it was like, well, that wasn't enough. That wasn't fixing, you know, the problem. So now I guess we'll try physical therapy, whereas mm -hmm. it is kind of a mind shift in, you know, our, yeah. our care. Yeah. And I think that there were times I felt like, and I'm going to use the word dump, I'm sorry, but I, there are times I felt like cases or patients were sent to me as a dump, like they, they were at their Western medicine was at the end of what they could offer. And so they're like, well, let's send you, you know, to rehab. But then a lot of those patients got well. <laughs> and so you bet um, your and sweet then you would, blank yeah. they did. <laughs> and then you would get, you know, more, more cases like that. But, you know, it's interesting to me. It makes me wonder, Dr. Beth, how the diagnosis comes into play here with Eastern and Western uh, medicine. Because sometimes we have patients who are in uh, end-stage hospice care or palliative care, and maybe we don't we suspect a diagnosis, but we don't actually have a diagnosis. How does that come into play? What do you, how do you make a decision on what philosophy you're going to use to treat a patient? That's a great question. I have actually two things that I want to respond with, but I will start with one of the beauties of Eastern medicine is that because its heritage came from a time when there wasn't as many diagnostic tools and we had to rely on our senses and symptoms only to arrive at whatever conclusion. It's a really great medicine for making choices based on symptoms. In traditional Chinese medicine, they describe it as having a pattern. So it's, you know, maybe it is, I'm going to give an example because I think it will make a little bit more sense. If I am seeing a middle-aged cat who has a bunch of inflammatory problems. Maybe they have inflamed gums and they have some cystitis or like painful urination. Maybe they have some yucky discharge from their eyes. Those symptoms can describe a pattern in Chinese medicine that we would call spleen chi deficiency. And we could treat that with acupuncture and herbs. And we don't have to know the root cause because we know that that pattern um, sends us down a line of thinking that we can address with food and herbs and acupuncture. But I think the other, the other kind of answer to that question is, I remember particularly at the start of my career, I would often not receive all the diagnostic tests and blood works and x-rays and things like that, that I would need to have the, um, the conventional or the Western medicine side of my brain be able to form conclusions or diagnoses. And so we still use all the Western medicine tools and diagnostics to give the best care that we can. But there are so many, like you say, Kathy, there's so many 
especially in palliative care or kind of end of end of life situations where people with very good reasons will opt to not do a bunch of tests or have a bunch of, you know, more invasive things go on for their pets. And Eastern medicine really shines in those situations because we can safely do a lot of treatment without knowing exactly what might be going on. Whereas Western medicine might might end up getting stuck and saying, there's nothing left to do. I don't, you know, there's nothing, there's no other things for me to try. So hearing this, do you feel, Dr. Beth, that, you know, your studies, and I, and I want you to tell the story of, you know, how you got to this place and why, but right now, do you feel like your studies have led you to be a better practitioner, um, more well-rounded and improved diagnostician in maybe a less traditional sense, you know, like you were describing, like putting together, you know, patterns and and things. And can you speak to that at all? I I can. I would say that I don't think I'm a better diagnostician than any of my colleagues. I think I just have the luxury of being able to look at it from two different angles. So if I am running up against a wall with one line of thinking, then I can choose the other line. So you have more tools in your toolbox, it sounds like, perhaps. I have different tools. Yeah. I think that I've been thinking about this a lot as people ask me questions about using Western and Eastern medicine together, how I never want to not have either at my disposal. And as long as I have been in practice, which is, I guess, about terrifyingly about 20 years now, um, (laughs) (laughs) the... um, I don't have any less desire to use my conventional medicine. I I don't want to choose. So I think that, yeah, I don't, I'm not sure exactly how to answer that question because I think it's every, in veterinary medicine, we have such a wide world of special interests that you kind of fall into. And so, you know, there, there are just so many different things that I am not expert on. This just happens to be my area of focus, but I, I mean, I certainly do love them both. Well, why don't you go roll into telling us your journey, you know, your story of how you got to where you are now? So yes, my journey, when I was 10, I decided I wanted to be a vet and that was that. So I went to vet school and I took kind of a fast track. So I went through a program that was both, I, I completed my undergraduate studies a little faster to get to vet school earlier, just so I could capitalize on the number of years people would say, are you really a vet? Aren't you, are you old enough? <laughs> Things like that. But while I was in vet school, I was introduced to acupuncture and I had never had any experience personally with any alternative or Eastern medicine. So it was very eye-opening. And the reason I was drawn to it was really initially not much to do with the actual medicine, but with the um, people and the pets that came in. I think they were from that pool that we were speaking about that were not being helped enough by Western medicine. And so their people came to Eastern medicine to see if they could be helped a little bit more. So they tended to be older types and super loved types and just really cool elders with cool people. And so that's kind of what drew drew me in. So I finished vet school and I started in practice. I was in emergency and general practice and um, did surgery and dentistry and that type of thing as well. And then started my acupuncture training. Acupuncture often serves as kind of a gateway drug into the alternative medicine world. (laughs) So it's really not that common that people will stop there, particularly if they're introduced to the traditional Chinese medicine part of acupuncture. There's certainly a big um, part of the veterinary acupuncture field that focuses on medical acupuncture, where it's more about the neurophysiology than about the traditional theories and those patterns like I was speaking of. So yeah, so as soon as I started my training, I would um, treat 
nurses, patients, and receptionist patients, and my colleagues. Um, and then once I finished, there was, you know, just a lot of call for it, a lot of people looking for acupuncture. And that's what I did for a while. Then I did my studies in rehab, as Chris mentioned. And once I was in rehab, then I wanted to learn herbal medicine. And so I did my Chinese herbal training and it just kind of snowballs from there. I think probably once you see that when we go out of our Western sphere, there's so many things that can help. And that world is pretty, seems just kind of like a big web of things that you can get really a lot of knowledge in that can be helpful. And the more people you meet that do something even more different, you just get interested in even more things. Maybe you could do a little bit of a deeper dive into some of those uh, things that you just mentioned. So for instance, acupuncture, I think there there's Chinese style acupuncture. And, and if I'm not mistaken, that Japanese. And I'm also interested to hear a little bit more about how Chinese herbs differ perhaps from supplements. And I'm very interested to hear about food therapy. I guess one way to unify all those things is to to realize that, yes, there are different kinds of acupuncture, and I am trained particularly in Chinese style of acupuncture. Um, so I tend to use Chinese style needles and and those theories. So I probably couldn't speak as much to um, the other styles of acupuncture. So I'll speak about what I know. But yeah, in that umbrella of traditional Chinese medicine or in my world to traditional Chinese veterinary medicine, you have acupuncture, herbal medicine, and food. And then once you kind of rebalance things, then you go back into the lifestyle of things. Actually, I missed one, which is Chinese medical massage, which is something called Twina, which you guys probably do all the time without, I'm sure there's a lot of overlap with our rehab massage. And we recently interviewed our, again, our mutual colleague and friend, Samantha yeah. Hankey, discussed Twina with, with our listeners and enlightened them about what that entails. So yeah, we're mm -hmm. all on the same page. So those are all part of traditional Chinese medicine. And so they're the different branches. So it kind of makes sense that it makes sense to me that practitioners might be drawn to acupuncture first to study. And I think the reason why I say that is there's a lot of research on it. It is, while it's hard to study in terms of to do an accurate double-blinded research paper, it is in some ways... Well, it's certainly been done more than some of the herbal medicines because that's complicated in a different way. I think because I'm a veterinarian and I've been reared in a conventional medicine system, Western medicine system, it kind of works with my brain to think about we're putting a needle, we're piercing the skin and putting a needle under the surface of the skin. And that's causing a little bit of a reaction under the skin in the tissue under that. And what we know is that those little chemical reactions, I, I picture it as we're kind of rustling up the cells under the surface of the skin. And by rustling up those cells, they will send each other messages to change things that are happening in the body. So often we're using acupuncture for pain control. So we want to dial up the body's natural endorphins in the brain, but we also want to reduce the number of pain messages that are getting up to the brain. And there's also some sneaky things that happen where the brain isn't even involved, where the nervous system from the area that we've wrestled up those cells will talk to the spinal cord and then it'll shoot some messages right back down. We're changing patterns of blood flow. So that's hugely important to the local areas of things. We're changing hormones and all these things are speaking my language of conventional medicine. So I think that that makes it a real draw for people, practitioners. I, I imagine this might be true for people, doctors as well, but I know for sure for veterinarians. And so, so if you are studying acupuncture and you're a clinician and you're like, oh, hey, uh, this seems to be working pretty well for certain cases, for certain patients, then I, you know, I can't quite ignore that there are these three other branches of this medicine. I wonder what those are about. 
And the Chinese herbal part is, gosh, I thought it was overwhelming to study acupuncture and all the theories and all the acupuncture points and um, meridians or channels through the body and all the both the old theories and the new theories, but herbal medicine is even more diverse. And I think that when it comes to people use the word supplement as something that is not a pharmaceutical is my understanding. And so an herbal medicine can be in the supplement category, but not all supplements are herbal medicines. And then you can have Chinese herbal medicine, you can have Ayurvedic herbal medicine, you can have all sorts of different herbal medicines. So just to repeat, herbal medicines, which can be, sounds like three different types, generally, Chinese, Ivermedic? That's not a Ayurvedic, so with Indian roots. I think there's way more than three, though. Chinese, Ayurvedic, and Western herbs are the big ones that we probably use in veterinary medicine, but there's like things all over the Americas, I mean, that are probably like grouped in Western medicine, but I don't know. These all fall under supplements, though, is what? Yes. The things that I think herbal medicines can be incredibly powerful when they're made correctly. And the thing that is, the thing that distinguishes a pharmaceutical from a supplement is that, or one of the things, but the thing I think of the most is that a supplement does not have to be regulated by the FDA. And people have many different feelings about the FDA and how useful and not useful or um, how accurate and not accurate the FDA is, but it is a starting point. Supplements are considered food when it comes to the FDA, so they're not regulated in the same manner at all. So the tricky thing is that you can have a Chinese herbal sub, Chinese herbal medicine that is classified as a supplement that has been used for thousands of years with great success. And if it, but you can also have someone who has very little or no experience creating supplements with those same materials and ingredients. So it's just like a huge span and spectrum of quality and really like whether it's research-based or experience-based, there's, so it's, it's like, a, I could, again, I could talk about that for my whole life and never feel well, satisfied. I, I remember Dr. Beth that, um, you know, you shared with me, especially early in your practice that, you know, the, the these clients were bringing their pets to you and you would put them on a Chinese herbal medicine, a supplement, what have you. They would go back to their conventional veterinarian and they would either take them off of those supplements because they would say they're not doing anything, or they would add in a pharmaceutical that could be deleterious along with that Chinese herbal medicine because you mentioned that they they very they are very powerful. And so in the wrong hands, if you don't know what you're doing, right, and, and you always get their records and know what they're on in terms of pharmaceuticals and so forth, but that could cause a potential problem. So just because they're not regulated by the FDA, that does not mean that they're not strong, effective, potentially dangerous, and need to be, quote, prescribed. Well, I would reframe it a little bit. I would say that the companies that I tend to use are those that follow the FDA standards, even though it's not required. So they treat their product as if any day the FDA could walk in and test their product. And that's what I feel good about. I think when it comes to herbal medicine, it is much less likely for an herbal medicine to cause a side effect than a pharmaceutical for a couple of reasons. One of the big ones is that particularly in Chinese medicine, you're using several different parts of several different plants together to create a synergy. So each of those parts of different plants may have less positive effects or improvements in that animal or that person, but together they work even better than the, than the separate parts. Also, when you're using multiple different ingredients like that of different plants, you can use a lesser amount of each part. And so there's going to be less side effects. And also, in addition, you can have 
You can add in little bits of things like licorice, which can often help with side effects that have to do with like gastrointestinal side effects. So it's kind of like a many tiered approach to why herbal medicine can often be gentler, but certainly if you use it incorrectly, then it can absolutely be harmful. And certainly you can get a side effect from anything I have learned um, without a doubt to never say things like, I have never seen a side effect from this because that means the next day someone will come in and say, right, they have had a side effect from that. And that's, that's just bodies. Bodies have different reactions to different things. In terms of, I mean, I think that as an alternative medicine practitioner, an Eastern medicine practitioner, I have to know both. So I have to know what of my herbs cannot be taken with certain pharmaceuticals, which is the way I practice not that common. Most of the times I blend them because I would like to blend them um, and that's safe to do so. But I think in if you are strictly Western medicine, it is there, you know, if you haven't had training in the Eastern medicine part, then you only know the pharmaceutical part and that can be scary for people. So I think that's why people panic. I think another thing that can happen is that because a lot of the supplements are not regulated, people may feel like it's okay to put their animals on a myriad of supplements and then get worried when they talk to their Western veterinarian and not mention those things. And then that can be really not the best thing for the animal and it's no one's fault. It's just, it's like a communication game. So I think the best way to rectify that is to have everybody talking when I'm working as a team with other veterinarians for my patients. I just always want to make sure that I know what they're on when it comes to any pharmaceuticals or different treatments. And then also make sure that the client, if they're going in for a recheck or whatnot, or if I need to send my records and that they have all the information as well. And usually a quick dialogue is all it takes to make sure that everybody's on the same page. When you uh, started talking about Chinese herbs, you said something about rebalancing the body. So is that in a sense what, what we're trying to accomplish with Chinese herbs, sort of the, to jumpstart the, the body's natural ability to rebalance itself? Yes. I think that in, in my thinking, I think that's what all medicine wants to do is rebalance the body. And the body really wants, again, this is my optimistic Sagittarian perspective on things, but the body really wants to be balanced. So using something like a physical modality, like we all use, whether it's rehab or acupuncture or chiropractics, you're using the body to like, yes, jumpstart something like, I'm going to bring a little bit more blood flow to this hip so that it feels a little better and gets a little better nutrition. And then you're going to walk a little better and then your mood's going to be a little better and then you're going to eat better and so on and so on and so on. So that is how you know, acupuncture works in a more physical way. The herbal medicines work in a more, instead of physical and mechanical, it's more chemical way. And so it's using plants for the most part, sometimes minerals. In the old days, an occasional animal part would get thrown in there, but you're using the chemical properties of those substances to kind of rework the body. So I think of it as, you know, all all of our pharmaceuticals come from natural source at some point, but we've distilled them out. So if we're looking to use something like an anti-inflammatory, we are going to, um, instead of distill out the one compound that we think is doing the majority of the work in Western medicine, in Eastern medicine, we're going to use that whole plant or that whole part of the plant that helps to both reduce the inflammation in that area, but also has some parts of the plant that help to reduce the side effects that are going to, that the that the patient is going to be a little bit more prone to. Hey, Chris, I'd like to take a little break right here, if you don't mind, to uh, mention our affiliates, Dr. Busby's Toe Grips, a dogsbestlifebox.com, and our friends at Heads Up Pets Water Collar. For information and links, simply go to our show notes. Remember to use the promo code PETPOD22 at checkout. That's P-E-T-P-O-D-2-2, all capital letters, to receive your 10% discount on orders. 
I feel like we have yet to address the food as medicine component of traditional Chinese medicine. Can you explain that just a little bit more? Yes. If you think of it as kind of a spectrum where you have the, like, as I think of it, kind of the distilled out, like, um, active ingredient that we use as a pharmaceutical, and then you go over a little bit to where it came from, the herb, the plant that pharmaceutical originally came from, and it gets a little bit gentler. And then even further over on the spectrum is the food as a medicine. So some examples are pears are really nice when you have a cold because it astringes some of the moisture and the the um, phlegmy stuff in your in your in your head and reduces cough. So by eating a whole fruit, you can use that as a medicine. There are certain traditional things like I think it often you know of it as seasonally like in the in the fall we're eating a lot of orange and yellow vegetables, pumpkin and squash and you know some some traditional fall vegetables here in New England and a lot of those are very nourishing for digestion. So there's lots of different properties like you might reach for a cucumber or a strawberry in the middle of summer because it's cooling and it actually helps to like cool some of your tissues down. Whereas you're going to have a hot soup with a bunch of ginger in it in the winter to kind of warm you up. So it's just kind of making it a little bit more generalized, I would say, when you're talking about food therapy. It's using the principles of our herbs. So different tastes equate to different um, chemical properties of each of the foods. And they tend to be higher in certain vitamins and certain substances. So it's a way to kind of steer your body in the right direction very gently and slowly, whereas an herbal supplement and then even further down the road, a pharmaceutical is like really to get you way back from wandering off track. So how would you put all of that together as a plan for a patient? So let's take a mutual patient. His name is Paul, Paul the cat, and he has has a fair amount of medical conditions, right? He's got some uh, malabsorption and he's got some underweight you know, problems and diarrhea and so forth. And so what was your thought process in developing a plan for Paul to get him back to, or to stimulate his natural ability to sort of rebalance his body, have these normal poops, take on weight and so forth? So he's a great example of how you need both both medicines. Paul is, he's a foster cat at our clinic at Sleepy Dog. And he came in with a history of pretty awful diarrhea and has really, I think, never been able to keep a lot of weight on his tiny body. What he lacks in physical girth, he makes up for in sassy attitude, as Kathy knows. And Chris Mm -hmm. Love him. He's amazing and will someday need a home. So anybody who's interested, please contact us. But he came in. So the first thing that I tried was to change his food. Um, He was on a restricted protein food and he had been on several of those, which is a valiant effort and certainly something I would have tried on my own as well. Um, But it didn't seem to be working. So I put him on a single ingredient, like a single protein ingredient food. And maybe that helped the tiniest bit, but I think he was too far imbalanced for that to take effect. And then I also put him on some Chinese herbs, something called Four Marvels. And so in Chinese medicine, the digestion is kind of spearheaded by the conceptual organ of the spleen. So it's different than we understand the spleen to be in, in Western medicine, but it is a, it's a part of the body considered to process fluids. So if you have diarrhea or constipation, you're not processing your fluids, right? You're either letting too much fluid through your bowels or you're taking too much out. So in his case, he was letting too much out. So four marvels is a very simple and a very old formula that helps to reduce inflammation and also reduce, in his case, it's going to help to reduce the um, propensity towards diarrhea. And it, it does help a little bit, but again, he was too far off track. So then we were 
leaning on our conventional medicine to see. We took some x-rays, we got an ultrasound. We were a little bit worried that he could have a cancer process going on because of his weight loss and his just inability to absorb anything. We ran a lot of different types of blood works and none of that was really showing us anything. There's no evidence of parasites, even though he probably had some time on the streets for a few years at least. And so now we have him on short-term, hopefully, course of metronidazole and a, a different special diet to see if we can get him more on track, which is helping. He's had some acupuncture, especially when he has a really bad day. We'll give him some acupuncture and some fluids under the skin to see if we can boost him up a little bit. And he tolerates it really well. But so I think that that's a pretty good case of how if if we think of like the needle pointing up for when things are in balance, I lean much more on my conventional medicine when someone is really down and out sick to bring them up. And then we'll try to use our Eastern medicine to really like put the put the needle straight up because either one alone, I don't think was really cutting it. How does watching movies with Paul affect his health <laughs> and well-being? Dr. Beth. Well, Chris, I'm glad you asked because it's really important to feel loved and have a lifestyle that is has some downtime and some leisure time and some sense of touch. So I think what Chris is referring to is that she caught me and Paul watching movies one time when I was visiting him to do his, on her day off <laughs> to do his medicines um, and feed him. But it is important. I think, you know, we all and he's a very tactile guy, so he needs a lot of touch to yes. kind of feel centered. So well, I also think in light of this discussion with Paul, it's a good time to throw in this quote I found. Mm -hmm. So it's from the World Health Organization, and it states that health is more than the absence of disease. You know, this whole discussion kind of surrounds that and your point about Paul needing touch. And I know, Kathy, you wanted to ask Dr. Beth a little bit oh, about- yeah. You know, I, I always, I'm always interested in the emotional lives of animals and mm -hmm. I, I love Paul dearly, even though he's a little bit, he's a little bit of trouble with boundaries and personal space, but, <laughs> but I'm okay with that. But she's absolutely right. He's very tactile and he needs a lot of touch. And so when I saw him on Saturday, we, we did, I had been doing some therapy with him, but he wasn't feeling that well for a couple of weeks. So we cut that. But what I did on Saturday was just instead of free feeding him. I took him into the room and I, I had him forage for his food. He loved it. And then we just sat and he purred and I snuggled him and we, you know, we sat for a little bit, got a little reiki. And then, you know, it was time for me to see appointments, but he, he needs a lot as far as his emotional life. And I'm wondering, Eastern medicine actually takes into the, takes into account the emotional life of the pet, their emotional well-being, their self as a whole, their body as a whole. I feel like Eastern maybe takes that a little bit more into consideration, that emotional life of them, their anxiety, their pain, their home life. For Paul, his need for tactile, constant. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so I think there's that mind-body connection. And I think he does get a lot of benefit just simply from touch. You know? Yes, yes. Um, I think that is true. And I think there's a couple things that I notice, which is, yeah, you cannot separate the emotional health or emotional pain from the physical body because if he everyone who's ever had a headache which is probably most people know you can't concentrate well you can't be your you know regular easygoing or perky self if that's how you are you can't you can't function in the same way and so an animal who's in pain whether it's from a musculoskeletal issue or it's a gastrointestinal like Paul, like that it affects everything. And I've we have also noticed with Paul that when he feels better in his body, he's able to be more appropriate in his behavior. And when he feels worse, he is really um like seeking out things that he shouldn't eat and, you know, kind of causing a ruckus in the general area that he inhabits. One of my very favorite things about Chinese medicine is that 
And this is true for Ayurveda too, and I'm not versed in that medicine, so I can't speak to it as well. But there are different personality um, types or temperaments that affect your propensity towards different imbalances or different medical conditions. If you are have a certain temperament just from nature and nurture, probably both, but mostly from nature, you're going to have a certain set of risk factors when it comes to the the symptoms that you're going to arrive at. So for instance, there's a fire type personality and in a fire type, you're going to have a bit more of a risk for heart issues a bit more risk for anxiety. And so you're going to use different foods, different herbs, and different treatments to help a fire type who's out of balance. I would also say that in comparison, when it comes to like another um, Chinese medicine uh, personality type would be the earth type, which is my type, which is going to be prone to worry. So like a little bit different than anxiety, but like, I mean... I can think of so many things to worry about and then a little bit more likely to like put on a few pounds, a little bit more likely to have gastrointestinal issues. And so there's like, there's these different ways that you can kind of parse out what might be going on in the patient when they're, when they are imbalanced. But also if you get them early enough, then you can have a sense of like what might be some great things prevention wise. Yeah. So that is really helpful. I think one of the, when I see new clients, we have a big list of questions that we ask. And one of, well, I would say hands down the most popular question that um, my team likes to ask, and I would say gets the most chuckles that I can hear in the exam room is, if your pet were a person, what job would they have? And the reason I asked that is I went to a lecture a long time ago where they recommended using that, this, and I think it was for horses at the time, but it does apply for small animals. It helps you to understand what their temperament is like. And once we have a sense of what their temperament is like, then we can have a little bit more sense of what they might be at risk for or which ways to kind of like gently nudge them away from. Yeah. So there have been, we always talk about making a book of all the awesome answers. I'm going to go back to Paul for a second because you're talking about these personality types. I mean, he actually is is not an earth type, though he does have gastrointestinal signs. He's a wood type and wood types are tend to be a little bit on the um, assertive side and they can have liver problems. And in Chinese medicine, the liver and the spleen are very connected. And so that's why I think he ends up with his GI problems, but um, they tend to make really good bosses um, (laughs) or leaders. And I I think of a lot of times, like a lot of terriers are wood types. Like they're like, "Eh, I'll think about it, but I'm only going to do it if I want to do it. Um, whereas a lab is like, you know, a little bit more likely to be like, well, I really love my mom and she asked me to do this. So I'm going to do this no matter what. And then, um, there's two other types, which are, there's the water type and water types are, tend to be a little bit on the fearful side. They tend to be animals that if they're in an exam room with us, they might be hiding under a chair or something like that, trying to not be seen. Like they're very I would say kind of in touch with their emotional life. And then there's also a metal type, which is pretty confident, I would say, I think of as metal types, but, um, but they're a little bit more aloof. Like they tend to be the border collies that are kind of patrolling the perimeter. They're not going to necessarily like engage and be on your lap, but they're going to be very alert and in, in tune with what's happening all the time. Just all sorts of different it it really is a beautiful thing because it allows for all sorts of different temperaments to affect medicine and affect our lives. So Dr. Beth, when you were talking yes. about Paul, you you know kind of described methodically, you know, introducing these these treatments as you were trying to, you know, get to the bottom of things. Is there ever a time where you kind of throw the kitchen sink at a pet because times are desperate and then maybe withdraw? a treatment at a time to see, you know, what sticks? Yes. The times that I would do that are if someone is more in dire straits, and I would say probably the most frequent would be someone who is struggling with cancer and there's 
not a lot uh, that conventional medicine is able to offer. And there's been a pretty rapid decline, then I will do that. And exactly as you describe, I will add all the things that I'm hoping will help. And then I will, if if we get back towards a balance, then I will start withdrawing them to see which ones they can live without um, and which ones they seem to really need. There are cases where if they're doing well, then we'll keep them on everything because no one wants to risk, you know, a little experiment there. But I try not to do that. And I think part of that is my temperament. I tend to be slow and I tend to try to try one thing at a time because I want to know if it's helping or hurting. And if there are any side effects, I want to know which of my magic potions is doing it. But I also... Yeah, I think I think that is my practice there and my style. I think there's many people that are a lot more feel much more comfortable adding in more things than I do. I think also because of the chronic nature of a lot of my patients and because I do see a lot of palliative care or end of life patients, I do think that I'm really worry a lot about appetite. So if I'm introducing something that's going to affect a patient's appetite, or if I'm introducing something that may deter them from their food, if we're trying to lace their food with something, then I'm I'm going to be so cautious. And I think that's the nature of the patients I see. So it could be different, certainly for different practitioners. Because Eastern medicine may be new terminology that our audience isn't familiar with, can you just review again the in name only the five branches of traditional Chinese medicine? Traditional Chinese medicine includes acupuncture, herbal medicine, food therapy, tuina, and then underlying everything is a person or a being's lifestyle. So an analogy that that I read online as we were preparing for today's chat that helps me to kind of remember the difference between Eastern and Western is it was described that Western is kind of the hardware and Eastern is the software. So hmm. it's a day of technology and, and all that stuff. Maybe that's something that people can relate to a little bit. I like it because I think one of the hard things when you're coming from Western medicine to kind of that people grapple with or trying to get their brains around is that there's a lot of things that because it's based on theory and touch and experience, it is harder for people to see it in the same way because it's a little bit more descriptive and less analytical in some ways. Um, so I do, I think it's a pretty good analogy and like you kind of need both, right? So what good is your software if you don't have hardware? Yeah. Well, thank you, Dr. Beth, for being here. It's always fun to talk with you. As we're wrapping up, do you have any any final thoughts you'd like to leave the audience with? And can you also let our audience know where they can find you? Yes. So final thoughts. I think that, well, I'm so happy to be with you guys as always. And I really appreciate what you're doing for getting all this information for pets out there. And always with a dose of hilarity in addition, which we all need, which I love. And I'm glad you're both in my life. That's for sure. And let's see. I mean, I'm happy to be reached. My website is www.sleepydog.vet, V as in, Vec, as in Victor. And that's a great way to reach me. I am a little bit more sporadic on social media, but we do have a presence there at Sleepy Dog Vet. I did want to mention too that one of my big interests these days is veterinary dentistry and helping some of our rescue and foster pets to get uh, more dental care, which is something that can be so helpful in their quality of life. And so at Sleepy Dog, we've started a program called Miles of Smiles. And that is where animals who are up for adoption or recently adopted or in foster care can get low cost dental procedures by me and we can get them started in a great way in their new home and be pain-free. That is also, there's a link to that program on my website. 
And I think that is most of what I have to say on that. Thanks so much for, again, carving out time out of your really busy schedule. I know firsthand just how much you're pulled in multiple directions. So really, really appreciate you coming back on the show and sharing your vast knowledge with us. Well, thank you both for having me. It's always a pleasure. Hey, Kathy, I think now may also be a good time to mention our New Year survey that we're launching. So the purpose of the survey is that we want to understand you and your pets better to ensure that our content is relevant, helpful, and interesting to you as our listeners. Please complete this survey no later than January 31st, 2023, and you'll be entered to win a $100 Amazon gift card. So one winner will be selected at random and notified via email. The link will be in our show notes. It will also be on all of our social media channels. And uh, again, we can only get better with your help. Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoyed our show. Follow us on social media at Petability Podcast. And please check out our affiliates and sponsors. Simply go to the show notes for information and links. Thank you and tune in next time.